Well, pleasure once again to be in the pulpit. To no surprise to many of you, we are going to be in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 25 this morning. So if you have a Bible or app or there's a Black Pew Bible around you, please make your way to Genesis 25 on, in those Black Church Bibles. That's page 19. 19. Now, for those of you who know, Genesis as a whole is 50 chapters. So if we're in chapter 25 today, that marks our halfway point. Ooh. So it's taken us over a year to get here. I don't know if it's going to take more than a year to finish to the end, but whatever God has for us, we will continue to march forward. Now, quick reminder that as we go through Genesis, right, and believe in it, it's a historical narrative document, we not only want to understand its historicity, right? We understand its grammar, how it was written. Why did Moses use the words that he used? But we desire to read Genesis as Christians. To not just see it as Jewish literature, but rather as Christian literature. And so we look back knowing what we know through the New Testament. We look back and read Genesis in light of it. In many ways, the New Testament has turned on many of the lights that were turned off in the Old Testament. Everything was there in the Old Testament, but it couldn't be clearly as seen as it can now, given the revelation of the New Testament. And so we're going to continue to look at Genesis, in particular 25 today, and understand why, how does that chapter, right, how does 25 fit into the rest of the canon? How does this fit together? How is God telling one story about himself and his redemption for people like you and I? To put it simply, we want to understand that the God of Genesis 25 is the same God in whom we get to worship today. That what he did then, although we were not the original recipients of it, it was certainly for us. Knowing that God works all things for good to those who are called according to his purposes. Now, Genesis 25, in many ways, is a closing chapter. It's, as you can see, the title of today's sermon, it's New Beginnings, because we're seeing the closing of the patriarch Abraham. And now we are kind of turning a new page to the next generation, to the, the promised son that's going to continue the covenant given to Abraham, and that is Isaac. And his offspring. But before we actually read through Genesis 25, I want to pray. I want to pray. As I normally do, I want to pray for you. Pray for the kiddos next door. And as I do that, will you please just pray for me and the preaching of God's word. And then we'll dive into it together. But let's pray one more time. Well, Father, I want to come to you before we look reverently at how you have recorded scripture. We have recorded revelation of you in order to be read and understood and obeyed for us this morning. God, what a gift it is to have a God that cares about how he is known, that you're a God who cares about the details. So Lord, I pray for every person in this room this morning that you would through your spirit, just to illuminate the text for them to rightly see and apply it to their lives. That we rightly see who you are, 
Who is the God of Genesis 25? Is this the God in whom I can trust today? I'm going to pray that you'd answer that question. I also pray for the kiddos next door and and the teachers that are leading them. Will you give them wisdom to rightly look at the same chapter that we're looking at in here? But encourage their little hearts to know and believe and trust in you, Jesus Christ, because of it. Lord, what a gift. What a gift it is to be able to submit ourselves to you and to your word this morning. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let me go ahead and read all of Genesis 25. I would ask specifically for uh, my Hebrew professor who is in attendance this morning to give me grace for the butchering of Hebrew names that I may or may not do. But let's read this together. Genesis, or I'll read it over us this morning. Genesis 25, starting verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shurah. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedon. The sons of Dedon were Ashurin, Latushim, and Lumen. The sons of Midian were Ephoth, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Verse 8. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zorah, the Hittite, east of Mamre. The field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Be'er Laharoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. The Boeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Misbam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jatua, Nafish, Kadama. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed, out, he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, and Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall, be, shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. 
verse 25. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Church, that is the word of us for us this morning. Yeah, thanks be to God indeed. Now I see there's two main sections of the chapter that we just read. In verses 1 through 18, we see the conclusion of Abraham, along with some of the generational notes about Ishmael and the sons. But then in verses 19 through 34, which will take a majority of our time this morning, we see the new beginnings of Isaac. Because although Moses wrote Genesis, we see that Moses had an emphasis to really highlight and zoom in on the covenantal people of God. And we'll see that as Isaac is the new beginnings of that. But we don't really talk a whole lot about Isaac. In fact, much of the end of the chapter is then focusing on Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. So we will talk about Isaac. But Jacob and Esau really then will have the, the dominance of the forthcoming chapters. So Moses is setting up their reality. Now, going back to verse 1, let me point out a few things from that very first section. Because we're seeing the story of Abraham come to a close. And there's a couple of things to take note that once Sarah had died, where we learn that Abraham married again to a woman named Keturah. And with Keturah, they had many sons. And those sons had sons. Now, why do we need to know that? Because in many ways, what we're seeing is Genesis reminding us that God is a promise keeper. If you recall... When God changed the name of Abram to Abraham, it was to indicate that Abraham, he would be a father to many nations, many nations. And so here what we're seeing is God made good on that promise to Abraham, that he was the father of many nations. All those sons of Keturah went to establish different nations, different nations. It all came true. Additionally, in verses 7 through 8, we're told about when Abraham died. He was 175 years old. And it says that he died in a good old age. Once again, this is a promise made, a promise kept. Because back in Genesis 15, God told Abraham that you would die in a good old age. Promise made, promise kept. And by the way, about 100 years had passed by since God gave that initial promise. 
Abraham was 75 years old when he was called to go and to follow God into a new land. And here he dies 100 years later. Promises made, promises kept. And then in verse 11, though Abraham had many sons, we are given specific direction that it's still, there's still one son that was the, the covenant son, the promised son, and that was Isaac. And Isaac would receive the covenant blessing. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. It says, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. See, God's plans were always moving forward. Always moving forward. And oftentimes, they were moving forward in a ways that Abraham probably wouldn't have asked for or projected or would have written up for himself. But his ways are always greater than our ways. That's one of the big emphasis of the first book of the Bible, church, is it's communicating that God's ways are better than our ways. That we shouldn't put our understanding of what we would do at the same level of what God would do. His ways are always greater than our ways. Now, because Ishmael was a part of the burial of Abraham to the cave of Machpelah with Isaac, I would imagine that the Israelites who were receiving this for the first time from Moses, like, hey, whatever happened to Ishmael? Like, what? You know, we haven't really talked about him. What happened to him? And that's where in verses 12 through 18, I think for historical purposes, Moses kind of gives a, right, a genealogy of what happened to Ishmael. Because after this, we, we don't hear about Ishmael again. And why? Because Moses has a particular emphasis to focus in on the covenant blessing of God. That he has a particular way that he is going to bring about his redemption in his people that he promised all the way back in Genesis 3. Because the focus of Scripture is tracing the Abrahamic covenant right now. Listen, one of the things that I've had to learn over and over again as I study Scripture is Scripture does not tell me everything I want to know. It doesn't. It does not tell me everything I want to know. But church, hear this. It will tell you everything you need to know about God and salvation and his plan of redemption. It will tell you everything you need to know there. So pay attention to them. What the Bible emphasizes, we should emphasize. Now, starting in verse 19, this is where we, we shift into that majority section. We focus in on the generation of Isaac, another Toledot. Just means generation. And at the beginning of verses 19 and 20, in particular, we're told of just some details about Isaac's life. Right? Where we see in verse 20 that when Isaac took Rebekah to be his wife, he was how old? He was 40 years old. 40 years old. Now, why do we need to know that information? Why do we need to know how old he was? We don't know how old Abraham was when he took Sarah to be his wife, but we do need to know how old Isaac was. Now, why? Well, I think this text, this chapter, gives us the answer to that because if you jump down for a second to verse 26, what do we see? That when Rebecca was finally able to have children, which she had twins, Jacob and Esau, which we'll talk about in a moment, 
How old was Isaac? We're told his age. He was 60 years old. 60 years old. So in these two places, Moses is trying to give us a chronology of how this happened. Now, that means that 20 years, 20 years, church, had passed from when Isaac married Rebekah into when Rebekah was finally able to have kids. 20 years. Now, this would have been a very big deal in that culture. A very big deal in that culture to not to have kids. Because to have kids, right, were to preserve your lifeline, to preserve your family, to preserve the nation in many ways. Right? It wasn't just about Isaac and Rebekah. It was about all of God's people. It was about the, com- the promised blessing. It was about the, the generational seed that would lead to the blessing of the whole world. But for 20 years, 20 years, Isaac and Rebekah had to wait. Had to wait. And it wasn't like they weren't trying to have kids, church. Verse 21 says that Rebekah was barren. So they had come to the conclusion that no matter how hard we tried to have kids, it wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. But what did they do? What did they do? Because this is not the first time a, a woman was barren in Genesis. What did they do? What did Isaac do? Did they try to come up with their own plan to have a kid with a, with a concubine, with someone other than Rebecca? To kind of skirt around God's promise? Is that what they did? Did they follow in the footsteps of Abraham? No. What did he do? He prayed. It says he prayed for his wife. He prayed. Which is very revealing for us, church. Very revealing. Because, and here's what I've known to be true in just my time of, I think just being a human, not even being a pastor, is you tend to find out who people are who they really are when they don't get their way. Like that's when they reveal who they really are. Or when they have a certain time frame that they want. Right, I feel convicted by this. But we learn that Isaac, at the depths of who he was, he wanted to trust God with his life in the timing of his life. In the promise of now, as we, I don't know if you've read ahead, Isaac is not a perfect guy at all. He makes a lot of mistakes, just like his father did. But here in this moment, I think he is showing some steadfastness in his trust towards God and his timing. And my guess is that he prayed for all 20 years for his wife. All 20 years he prayed that God would bring life to his wife's womb. Prayed that the the promise that God had made would come forward. But he waited and he prayed in 20 years. 20 years, God had him wait until he answered that prayer. So Isaac, though we will see his failures, right? Isaac is not, we're not putting Isaac on the pedestal, but we should look at Isaac's thoughtfulness to praying here for a moment. His wonderful reliance on the sovereignty of God, not only for God's actions, but also for God's timing, which we often separate, don't we? We want God's sovereign actions, but we tend to not want God's sovereign timing on those. But Isaac wanted both. Now, 
when it came to this instance, church, right? Isaac praying for his wife, right? Praying that they would be able to have children. This hits home for me, church. This hits home real hard as I was thinking about this. Many of you, you know, I have wonderful gifts of children with Mia and the twins, Levi and Carly. They're all in the room next door, right? But what you may not know is Levi and Carly are not the first twins that Gene and I had. You see, it was many years after Mia that we were praying and wanting to have more kids that God granted life back into Gina's womb. And we were ecstatic about that. But a couple of months into the pregnancy, Gina started to bleed. Went to the doctor and our worst nightmares were confirmed. There was no heartbeat. But what we didn't know until that day is that it wasn't just one heartbeat, it was two. Two heartbeats. Gone. We were crushed. Crushed that we lost a baby that we were anticipating, but even just the, the, the grief of, I didn't even know that there was a possibility of having two didn't run in our family, wasn't part of our plan at all, and just crushed at the reality of what would that even been like to have twins. But even though we were crushed, church, God was good and gracious to us that he said, you can trust me. You can trust me. You can trust my plans. You can also trust my timing. Now, we didn't know what that exactly meant. I'll tell you what, I listened to Horatio Spafford's hymn, It Is Well, a whole lot during that season of my life. Because I wanted to cast my thoughts on something greater than my own mind. But from that day forward, I started praying that we would have twins. And God, you guys know, God answered that prayer. He didn't have to. I didn't deserve it. But he answered it, and he answered it in his own timing. I'll tell you, there is something very unique, and I think this, everybody in the room could probably understand this at some level. There is something unique about wanting to have a child or raising a child in those early days or, or having grown children of your own that makes and drives your dependence on God in so many ways. That there is something about kids even though they are a wonderful blessing from God. They drive you to God and your dependence on Him in ways that you would have never done before. And we thank God for that. Because we get a rich blessing of, of kids and time with them, and He gets to be God. Which is exactly what kids are intended to do. Be a blessing, but reveal God new and profound ways. It's what happened with Isaac even before the pregnancy. And it's what happens with Rebecca during the pregnancy. Look at verse 22. Now, I don't know if exactly Rebecca understood that she had twins in her womb, but she, she knew that something was not right. Something was different. Something wasn't normal. And so she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? In the Hebrew, it could even be translated, why do I live? 
that Rebecca just knew that something was different, something was going on here that was bigger than even herself. But what did she do? She went to God. She went to God. See, God is not afraid of your questions. God is not afraid of the circumstances of your life. Much like Glenn mentioned this morning, he's not going back, I didn't see that coming. I don't know what that is. He, he knows all of it. He's orchestrated all of it. And so you can come to him with whatever questions you have, what's going on in your life. He's not afraid of those. See, we often sometimes let the trials of our life drive us away from the sovereignty of God, that God must not be in control, but the scripture repeatedly is the testimony that trials should drive you to the sovereignty of God. It should drive you to the one who's in control, not away from it. So she goes to God. Why is this happening? She inquires with him. What's going on? And God answers this prayer with a specific revelation in verse 23. Letting her know that there are two babies in her womb. But these two babies are more than just babies. right? They are representatives of two nations. That there will be strife between them. But at the end of verse 23, we're told something very important. Very important. It says, the older shall serve the younger. That although there will be strife between them and the nations they represent, God says, but there is victory for the younger. Pay attention to that. There will be victory for the younger. In many ways, this sets the stage for what comes next, right? It sets the stage of, okay, what does that mean? That the older will serve the younger. What does it mean that there will be tension between these two kids? Well, in the following verses, we learn that when the twins were born, Esau came out first. Right? Harry, Red, Esau came out first. Indicating that he was the older. The older. You know, there's, there is great banter between twins and the timing of their birth. Carly was one minute older than Levi. And she holds that over him pretty well. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm your older sister. I can only imagine as they grow, Levi's like, 60 seconds. 60 seconds older. But there's, there's importance here. So Esau came first. But Jacob was right after him, right? Quite literally on his heels, right? Says that he was grabbing onto Esau's heel. It's even why he has the name that he, his name is Jacob, which means heel grabber, but it also can mean like a scoundrel or a cheater, which we also will see in the life of Jacob. Now in verse 27, if you look there in your, in your Bibles, in verse 27 it says that when they grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. I'll be honest, much of my remembrance of having anybody talk about that particular text used to say that see Esau was a man's man and Jacob was a mama's boy that's not what the text says it says that Esau was a man of the field and Jacob was a man dwelling in tents now there are some other people who were told and have descriptions of dwelling in tents one was Abraham dwelled in tents and one was that Isaac dwelled in tents I think what we're seeing here, it has nothing to do with masculinity. It has everything to do with what were they giving their lives to. Esau was doing his own thing. 
right? But Jacob being a man of the tents or dwelling in tents likely indicated that he was actually wanting to carry on the family business, wanting to care for the nation in which his father had started. See, he had nothing to do with masculinity, as I've often been told. In fact, what we're seeing is just a, the beginning emphasis on this is God choosing, that God has chosen Isaac to continue the line that would become Israel. Israel. That Jacob would be the promised son like Isaac was the promised son. Because in the New Testament, I want to show you this. This is from the Apostle Paul in Romans 10. He picks up this and he actually shows that this is actually about the the grace of God and choosing whom are going to be his own. So this is Romans 9, 10 through 13. Paul says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Church, that according to God's own purpose and his own will, he chooses whom will belong to him for salvific purposes. This is known as the doctrine of, the elect, of election, that God chose Jacob but did not choose Esau. Now, I know some people really don't like that doctrine, don't like that God would choose. It doesn't seem fair. Well, in many ways, it's not fair. Because as we will look at both Esau and Jacob's life, none of them deserve to be chosen by God. But despite Jacob and his actions, he was chosen by God. Even what we just read, it was trying to highlight election is not about who's going to be better for his purposes. It's not about God looking down the corridor of the future and going, oh, Jacob will choose me, therefore I will choose him. It says, in the womb, before they had done anything, God chose Jacob and not Esau. At this point, church, I think it's clearly that doctrine of election is there. It's in the text. It's undeniable. And at this point, we have to remember that God is God and we are not. That there are things in which God will do which our finite minds will not be able to keep up. His ways are always better than our ways. He chooses whom he chooses. But he always chooses not based off of merit, not based off of what you do, but based off of just his own goodness and his own grace, saying, I'm going to choose you. You belong to me now. And at the end of the day, church, I don't want to try to spend my time trying to figure out why God has chosen me versus somebody else. I want to simply delight that God chooses to save sinners. I want to delight in the reality that all of us don't deserve to be chosen by God in any way. But if you're a Christian this morning, it's because God in his own mercy and his own grace has said, you belong to me. I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to give you a heart that longs for me, that will turn from your sin and trust in me. That only comes from him. And our text says that it's from grace. 
It's to de demonstrate God's love for people who could not give themselves the salvation, but he revealed it to them. In fact, we'll see Jacob live up to that name of cheater more than what we see to heel grabber. Even in the, the, the verses at the end of the chapter, verses 29 through 34, what do we see? We see Jacob blackmailing and kind of cheating Esau out of his birthright. The birthright would have been, in most cases, a double portion of the inheritance of the father. But Jacob was taking advantage of Esau's needs in that moment and got him to sell him his birthright. And we'll talk about that birthright more in the coming chapters than I will today. But I want to direct your attention back to verse 30. Verse 30. Because this would have been really important for this original audience to understand, and I think for us today. In verse 30, when Esau said to Jacob, he said, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And then we have that parenthetical note says, therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, in Hebrew, red is pronounced Adam, Adam. And based off of this red stew and also kind of just the, the red nature of Esau himself, he would have had this nickname of Adam. But then, just through time, that would be more referred to as Edom. That's just like, like a play on words. They referred to him as Edom. Now, why is that important? Because Israel, hundreds of years later, they would have strife with a nation known as the Edomites. Remember that, that revelation that was given to Rebekah, that there'd be two nations in strife. Well, what became those two nations was Israel and Edom, or the Edomites. And for Moses, as he was telling the original audience this, the real audience this, they would have understood this reality. Oh, that's where this all comes from. That's where the conflict began. Even as Israel is, during Moses' day, are trying to make their way back to the promised land, they want to go through the nation of Edom. And you can read about this in Numbers, that the king of Edom said, no way, no way are you coming through my land to get back to Canaan. In fact, if you step on my land, we're going to kill all of you. See, the strife began here in Genesis 25. It continued all through the days of Moses. And even as you continue to read Scripture, you'll see that it continued all the way through the Old Testament, even to Jesus' day himself. Because do you remember the king that when he heard that a Messiah had been born, ordered the slaughter of every male child to and under? Do you remember that? King Herod. King Herod. Guess what line King Herod came from? He was an Edomite. You see, this tension between God's people was always there with this nation of the Edomites. And so why did they need to know this? Why did Moses feel like they needed to be reminded of the history of this? Because of that initial revelation that the older shall serve the younger. You see, God was trying to communicate that, yes, there will be strife, but there will be victory for the younger. And you can trust me in that because that is a promise made and a promise I will keep. And so for the Israelites in that day, they can go, okay, 
we can trust God. Even though we know there's strife, we know there's tension, we know that there's a victory promised for us, that we don't have to fear the future, that we simply can trust the God who's in control of it. And may that be true of all of us this morning. Radically trusting and praying in the God who knows all church. Right? To not abandon God's ways, right? Not to try to skirt around, not to do the thing that seems more temporary, satisfactory in the moment ago. But even if I have to wait, even if I have to trust you for years, I'm going to resolve to do that now. Radically trusting, placing our hope and faith in a God who not only knows the future, but is in control of it. And the greatest example of God's control and knowing of the future is what for the Christian? It's the cross of Jesus. It's Jesus going to the cross of Calvary. It's Jesus dying in the place of sinners. It's Jesus atoning for our sins. It's Jesus giving his perfect life to us. And him bearing our imperfect life. And Jesus raising from the grave. Demonstrating that he's in control all of this, church. That there's not one detail of our lives that God is not saying, I, don't, I didn't know about that. The cross proves that he is working all things to his end. Right? The resurrection proves that he has the power to do it. It's a gift of ours. All of the Bible, all of the Bible, church, is highlighting who's in control. Who's in control? Is it him or is it you? Is it circumstances? him? Is it coincidences or is it providence? Whom will you follow? Whom will you trust? I think Genesis has been, keeps provoking our hearts and minds to go and I want to trust the one who's in control. Help me do that. Help me do that. And I think when we do that and we trust in Jesus, right, place our faith in him for everything, and say, all I have is Christ. By doing that, we have everything. We have everything we could ever need. And then we get to come to church, not with a swagger. Right? Not going, um, I figured this out. I've done the right things. But rather, the coming going, I don't know why, but God has revealed himself to me. And I can't just forget about that. In fact, I have to respond to it. I have to do and follow what God has placed inside of me, right? That desire to follow him doesn't make it easy, but it makes it your greatest desire is to follow him because he's worthy. And there's only new beginnings in him, church, right? We're, we're told of a lot of beginnings for other individuals, but the new beginnings, the new beginnings of promise start and end with the promise maker. And I pray that we would walk out of here today, maybe just believing that for more for the first time. Maybe if you're not even a Christian this morning, you're not quite sure where you're at. And you're going, how do I know if I'm even called? What if I'm not, what if I'm not chosen? Well, I, I can't answer that for you. But I do know you're here. And that's not a coincidence. That God has revealed who he is through his word for a reason. What will you do with that? I pray it's when you go, I'm tired of trying to be the God of my own life. 
I want to submit myself to the God who's in control of everything and demonstrated his love for me on the cross. That's the God of Genesis 25, church. Let's go ahead and end there. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond. Well, Father, as we end our time in your word, I'm thankful that you are the God of Genesis. And that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as I see you working all things for your glory and our good, I can trust you. I can turn from sin, from the lie and the false promise that it gives me, and turn to the one who never gives false promise. Always gives me exactly what I need. So Lord, help us. Help us trust you. Help us be doers of what you've called us to do. Help us grow in our prayer for you that though the trials that we have now would drive us to you, the trials that will come tomorrow will drive us to you, and that we would be a people that sleep well at night, not because the world is right, but because you're the God of it. And we trust you in all things, even when they're hard. Lord, we love you, but we need you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.